Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this evening's virtual book club gathering. I'm Professor Jane O. Newman. I'm a professor of comparative literature at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm a trustee of the National Humanities Center, and I'm your host for this evening's event. Throughout the summer, millions of protesters have gathered across the United States, as well as in cities abroad, insisting that we address the many forms of anti-Black racism that have plagued our country for generations. Our guest this evening is Professor Martin Summers. He teaches in the Department of History and the Program in African and African Diaspora Studies at Boston College. Martin is an award-winning cultural historian whose work on issues of race, gender, and sexuality and medicine in the 19th and 20th centuries, U.S., has been supported with numerous fellowships from the Ford Foundation, the American Council of Learned Societies, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and the National Humanities Center, who's hosting this event this evening. Martin's first book, Manliness and Its Discontents, The Black Middle Class and the Transformation of Masculinity, 1900 to 1930, received the American Historical Association Pacific Coast Branches Book Award in 2005. That book examines how uh, African-American and African-Caribbean immigrant men in the early 20th century constructed modern masculine identities through their own organizational life, work, leisure, and cultural production, and were not simply screens onto which white men projected their own gender anxieties and concerns. While at the National Humanities Center as a fellow in 2013-14, Martin conducted work on his most recent book, Madness in the City of Magnificent Intentions, which considers how assumptions about the existence of distinctively black and white psyches have affected the lives of patients and caregivers at St. Elizabeth's in Washington, DC, our country's first federally operated psychiatric hospital. Martin has kindly agreed to speak with us uh, this evening about his work on St. Elizabeth's and to reflect on how racialized approaches to medicine have affected the lives of African-Americans in our nation's capital. So please join me, if you will, in welcoming Professor Martin Summers to speak to us this evening. Martin. Thank you, Jane. Uh, thank you for the introduction. And I want to thank uh, Robert Newman for inviting me to participate in this uh, series and for uh, Jane uh, Newman for hosting. I also want to thank the National Humanities uh, Center. Um, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that uh, this book would not exist without the NHC. Uh, the fellowship in 2013, 2014 really came at a time um, after I had been working on this project for over 10 years and I was on deck to 
I take on a significant administrative role at uh, my, my home institution, and I couldn't foresee completing the book uh, for several years after that. But uh, this, um, this very timely uh, fellowship allowed me to uh, get uh, a, a lot of uh, writing done and then carry that momentum over into, uh, into uh, the year my first year as uh, director of African and Diaspora Studies. So I'm really thankful for uh, National Humanities Center for providing me uh, the resources and uh, the, the space to, to write. And I also would like to thank uh, Ruth and A. Morris Williams for uh, their generosity in funding the fellowship. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about my book, give an overview of the book, uh, and also touch on some themes that I think speak to some of the uh, contemporary issues that uh, the nation is confronting uh, today over policing of communities of color and also the role of the police uh, in uh, crisis management of uh, uh, people uh, with, uh, with mental illness. Um, but I'd first like to just give a little bit of a uh, background on um, St. Elizabeth's itself. So just bear with me while I good. So uh, St. Elizabeth's, um, uh, was established in 1855 uh, with a mandate to house and treat uh, insane soldiers and sailors, as well as uh, residents, civilian residents of the District of Columbia, who were too poor uh, to, uh, to afford uh, private treatment. And this is an early image of uh, St. Elizabeth's shortly after uh, its opening. Um, at its peak, uh, it housed approximately 8,000 uh, patients. Uh, and this is an aerial view of the hospital in uh, the mid uh, 1970s. And as you can see here, hopefully you can see my cursor, uh, this is the original uh, center building, but all of this um, was the St. Elizabeth's uh, campus. And it was located, I should say, in uh, the Southeastern quadrant of uh, Washington, uh, DC. Um, St. Elizabeth's was considered a preeminent research and teaching hospital from the late 19th uh, to the mid uh, 20th century. It was one of the first asylums to introduce hydrotherapy uh, as a form of treatment in uh, the late 19th century. Uh, its uh, superintendent in the first third of the 20th century, William Allenson White, uh, was a proponent of uh, psychoanalysis. And so it was among a few uh, mental institutions to actually uh, use uh, psychotherapy um, as a uh, method of treatment. Um, and uh, one of the American popularizers of the lobotomy, uh, William Freeman, worked at St. Elizabeth's in uh, the 1930s. But what also makes uh, St. Elizabeth's uh, an important uh, institution was that it was one of the few hospitals in the country prior to uh, the 1950s to have a, a racially heterogeneous patient population. Uh, there were other uh, mental institutions uh, in the U.S. and particularly in the South that had African-American patients such as Eastern Lunatic Asylum in Williamsburg, Virginia, which had African-American patients from its founding in 1773 to 1870. And then the South Carolina Lunatic Asylum in uh, Columbia, I believe, uh, South Carolina, uh, that had uh, uh, Black patients uh, from uh, 1848 uh, to the 1920s. 
Uh, but those uh, pa black patients at Eastern uh, and uh, South Carolina Lunatic Asylums uh, constituted a fairly small uh, percentage of the total patient population, as opposed to saying a list of this, which by the 1890s, 40% uh, of the patient population uh, was black. Uh, so uh, the significant presence of black patients at St. Elizabeth's really provided me an opportunity uh, to examine how race and racism uh, shaped psychiatric ideas and practices uh, from the mid 19th uh, to the late 20th century. So I, I, I develop or uh, make two uh, main arguments uh, in the book. Uh, the first main argument is that ideas about racial difference uh, influenced how psychiatrists at St. Elizabeth's thought about insanity and mental health and uh, subsequently developed um, uh, approaches to address them. Uh, from the mid 19th century to the mid 20th, psychiatrists believed that the black psyche was fundamentally different from uh, the white psyche. And this really contributed to a psychiatric consensus that uh, black mental illness was distinctive uh, from a white mental illness. Uh, mentally ill black people were essentially thought to be more depraved and dangerous uh, than mentally ill white people. Uh, and this is evident in the decisions, uh, this, this, this idea, this belief in um, this kind of fundamentally uh, different black uh, insanity was evident in the decisions made by the hospital's uh, founders uh, when they uh, designed the, the hospital. Um, so for instance, uh, black patients were housed in buildings uh, that were uh, at a distance from uh, the center building. And here is a layout of the hospital. Again, this is that center building, which we've seen uh, and um, in the previous images. And as you can see here, uh, this is a lodge uh, for colored women and a lodge uh, for colored men. And uh, they were pretty um, much situated equidistantly uh, between uh, the center building that housed white patients. And as you can see here, the physical plant, um, the stables, uh, machine shops and things like that. So uh, basically the housing of, of black patients, the design of the hospital itself really reproduced of the racial topography of uh, the plantation. Now these decisions on um, how to house uh, African-American patients were really based on and reinforced uh, the belief that the white psyche uh, was the norm and that the white, the white sufferer of uh, mental illness should take precedence uh, over uh, the, sufferer, the black sufferer of uh, mental illness. Um, and I think it's important to, to, to uh, recognize that the racial segregation of patients at St. Elizabeth's was not just a manifestation of the racial segregation that existed in uh, the larger society, but rather it was justified by a therapeutic logic that held that exposure to the depravity and the dangerousness of mental, mentally ill Blacks uh, would impede the recovery of uh, white patients. Uh, but this belief in the normative nature of the white psyche also produced a great deal of ambiguity when it came to psychiatrists' attempts to comprehend insanity among black people. 
these questions of what actually constituted black madness and how uh, did it differ from the insanity experienced by whites, uh, despite an uh, a priori uh, assumption about racial difference, really characterized psychiatrists' interaction with uh, black sufferers of mental illness. And we see this in, uh, in a few ways. For instance, the admission of black patients to St. Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's to begin with. Um, black patients were admitted to St. Elizabeth's despite the mid 19th century medical consensus that people of African descent uh, and enslaved and quote unquote primitive people possessed a natural immunity uh, to insanity. And uh, uh, physicians attempted to explain uh, this immunity uh, to insanity, uh, both uh, physiologically as well as culturally. So physiologically, they argued that um, you know, since insanity essentially was a deterioration of uh, the nervous system, the brain and the nervous system, that uh, primitive peoples, and in this case, African-Americans, did not have sufficiently developed uh, nervous systems or brains to deteriorate uh, in the first place. But they also um, point to cultural reasons um, to explain uh, this immunity uh, to insanity among uh, African-Americans. And that argument basically uh, posited that enslavement, that enslavement itself offered uh, protection uh, to uh, Black people from the stresses and strains of uh, modern society that might precipitate um, the um, um, that might precipitate uh, mental illness and mental deterioration. So this uh, ambiguity uh, made it somewhat challenging uh, for me uh, to interpret the sources and get a clear sense of how uh, 19th century psychiatrists thought about uh, Black insanity. And I, I'd like to just uh, read a short passage from the second chapter of, uh, of the book, which uh, looks at um, the hospital uh, shortly after uh, the Civil War and, um, and again, kind of the interaction or, or how African-American patients were thought about uh, by St. Elizabeth's uh, physicians. So of the approximately 280 African-Americans admitted to St. Elizabeth's in the first two decades of its existence, perhaps the most enigmatic case is that of Letitia B. The 39-year-old native Virginian was admitted to the hospital almost a year to the day after the end of the Civil War. Residence was not typically listed in the hospital's register, so we do not know if Letitia was a longtime denizen of Washington, if she lived in one of the district's four tenement complexes set up and run by the Freedmen's Bureau, or if she was an inmate of one of the camps located in Northern Virginia, whose officials may have managed to circumvent Superintendent Nichols' opposition to accepting Virginia refugees as public wards. There's very little about Letitia that is actually remarkable. Like more than two thirds of African-Americans admitted to the hospital in 1866, she was an insane pauper. Her diagnosis of mania was not unusual either. Since the beginning of the hospital's operation, 63% of the African-Americans admitted were diagnosed with some form of mania. What makes Letitia a particularly interesting case is the cause of her insanity. Similar to most of her fellow African-American inmates, 
the diagnosing physician attributed Lutetia's mania mainly to moral in contrast to physical causes. As opposed to the small number whose insanity was thought to be brought on directly by an underlying bodily infirmity, such as epilepsy, pulmonary tuberculosis, idiocy, or paralysis, the sanity of the majority of admitted African-Americans was disrupted by unnerving events or processes, such as religious excitement, the death of a close family member, alienation from their social network, domestic trouble, fright, or jealousy. But even with the elastic and amorphous quality of moral causation, it is difficult to make sense of the precipitating factor in Lutetia's descent into madness, the quote, blackness of her husband. The opacity of the early register books at St. Elizabeth's make it, makes it impossible to fully understand what the hospital staff meant by this provocative phrase. She was admitted several decades before hospitals began creating and maintaining patient case files, and there are therefore few clues to Letitia's commitment. Was the blackness of her husband the considered opinion of one of the two physicians who had to attest to her insanity? And if so, was the doctor literally referring to the man's skin color? The medical profession generally accepted the proposition that insanity could occur when an underlying morbid condition was aggravated by, quote, a powerful impression from without producing some great moral shock. As such, Lutetia's husband's dark complexion might very well have been the catalyst as far as the diagnosing physician was concerned, although presumably Lutetia would have been accustomed to it. Or did the phrase mean something less tangible, such as her ill treatment at her husband's hands, his black-heartedness, as it were? If so, was the information provided to the physicians by one of the two district householders who had to confirm Lutetia's inability to self-support or by Lutetia herself? The possibilities are many, but all are ultimately nothing more than speculation. Lutetia's presence jumps off the page of the hospital's registry, demanding our intention, and is at the same time frustratingly confined by the limits of the record-keeping process. Nothing more than a few words jotted down, perhaps by an uninterested clerk who is merely following institutional procedure. Nonetheless, the cryptic reference to blackness is emblematic of how race loomed over clinical encounters between white physicians and African-American patients, even if the sources are not always precisely clear how it did so. So um, this ambiguity, ambiguity uh, made it somewhat challenging to interpret the sources and really get a clear sense of how a 19th century psychiatrist uh, thought about um, insanity. Uh, so for instance, uh, the ambiguity that we're talking about really lies in this source, uh, but in a more general sense, uncertainty about the relationship between race and mental illness can be seen in psychiatric discourse itself. Uh, we see this in psychiatrists' attempts to explain the epidemic of insanity among newly freed people in the post-emancipation period, uh, and especially in uh, the 1880s and the 1890s. And again, I'll just read a, a, a short passage, and this will be the, sec the last passage that I read before just um, finishing with the rest of the talk. 
Um, in the late 1880s, the Australian physician George A. Tucker published Lunacy in Many Lands, an encyclopedic volume containing information on scores of asylums that he had visited in the first half of the decade. In addition to his personal observations, excerpts from annual reports and texts of lunacy legislation, Tucker included the responses that superintendents gave to a survey he had distributed. St. Elizabeth's was one of the asylums that Tucker toured. Perhaps it was the hospital's location in the Upper South or the sizable African-American population in the district of the, in the 1880s that prompted Tucker to inquire whether St. Elizabeth's superintendent had observed an increase in the prevalence of insanity among the colored, but his response was very telling. Very marked, Superintendent W.W. Godding claimed, I think largely growing out of their emancipation. Washington was a city of refuge to which contrabands flocked during the war, and the entire change in their modes of life, the added cares, the new ambitions awakened, the struggle for existence under circumstances by no means the most favorable. All the trials of the transition period from slave to citizen without the advantage that in time may be expected to accrue from the latter. All of these have had their effect in greater mental strain and consequent an increase of insanity. Godding was so certain that emancipation had contributed to the mental distress of African-Americans that he answered in the affirmative Tucker's question as to whether there was an increase in insanity in the district beyond the increase in population. Although he suspected that this was the case with whites as well, it was difficult to state so definitively because of the district's high rate of transiency. He was without a doubt when it came to the city's black residents. Godding's response to Tucker's survey reflected a prominent strain within the national debate over the Negro problem in the post-emancipation era. A population that had overwhelmingly been enslaved, African-Americans were not deemed equal by whites of any political persuasion, despite their nominal citizenship after 1868. The general consensus among whites, uh, Northern and Southern, Republican and Democrat, was that freed people were incapable of adapting to their new civil status without the assistance of their more civilized counterparts. That assistance could range depending on where one fell on the ideological spectrum, from advocacy of industrial education to compulsory labor. Alongside, alongside this new paternalism existed a more malevolent attitude toward African-Americans, one that considered them to be completely incapable of surviving and flourishing outside of the relationships of dependency that slavery had engendered. Without the security of bondage, this line of thinking went. Freed people would revert to their savage ancestral past and eventually become extinct, potentially rending the social fabric of the nation in the process. The childlike Negro would prefer engaging in criminal activity to honest labor, would easily allow his vote to be manipulated by corrupt political parties, and would mistake his political power for a license to sexually assault white women. Along with segregation, which also ultimately became a cornerstone of the new paternalism, Disfranchisement and extra legal violence purportedly functioned as safeguards against the regressing African-American. Proponents of this particular post-emancipation narrative pointed to increased rates of crime and disease among African-Americans as evidence of their inability to adjust to their new lives as free people. 
An alleged epidemic of rapes and attempted rapes of white women in the late 19th century was taken to indicate the utter lack of self-control of the Negro, a problem that was best resolved by lynching and more community engulfing violence, such as the race riots in Wilmington in 1898 and New Orleans in 1900. From a disease standpoint, according to this narrative, the higher incidence of tuberculosis and syphilis within black communities revealed the inherently weaker constitutions of African-Americans and not coincidentally reinforced the Southern apologist argument that slavery had been a benevolent and salutary institution. In addition to growing rates of certain somatic diseases, as Gotting's answer to Tucker reveals, the medical community suggested that increased diagnoses of insanity were further telltale signs that freedom ultimately had a deleterious effect on African-American health. Free people, the argument went, were ill-equipped to handle the stresses and strains that were natural to an existence in the competitive modern world. Within this logic, insanity was still largely defined as a disease of civilization, a refrain that would continue into the early 20th century. As asylum physicians continued to conceptualize mental illness as an affliction of the most cerebrally advanced races, its growing presence within a race that was supposedly in the process of becoming more primitive presented a theoretical problem concerning the etiology of insanity. One of the ways they sought to resolve this contradiction was to deploy an evolutionary argument that emphasized racial degeneracy and the lack of civilizational advancement of people of African descent. Degeneration rather than evolution became the principal explanatory model for increasing rates of insanity. When Godding responded to George Tucker's survey in the 1880s, he was illustrating his adherence to this freedom equals racial degeneration narrative that had been circulating for at least a dozen years and that the medical profession would continue to advance for another two decades. For Godding, the apparent increase in mental illness among African-Americans was not a result of insane Blacks who would have ordinarily remained on plantations or in households under the care of slaveholders or their families now coming within the purview of the state. Rather, the soaring rates of insanity could best be explained by the incomplete transition that African-Americans were undergoing from the status of slave to the now burdensome role of citizen. Although he was hardly an apologist for slavery, Godding, like so many other asylum physicians and neurologists, unquestioningly accepted this particular narrative of emancipation and repeated it until it became common sense, an irrefutable argument that both explained African-Americans' lack of progress and justified their continued discriminatory treatment. So as the, that passage uh, points out, uh, physicians or uh, psychiatrists really attributed these um, increasing rates of insanity, supposed increasing rates of insanity among uh, the African-American population to freedom, but they could not develop a consensus as to whether insanity was precipitated by uh, physical underdevelopment, again, an, an underdeveloped uh, nervous system, or cultural uh, underdevelopment, that is uh, black uh, society lacking institutions and cultural norms uh, to assist in coping with stress. So in a sense for the psychiatric profession, uh, black insanity really constituted an epistemological uh, problem. 
But it was this kind of ambiguity uh, that really underpinned uh, uh, therapeutic approaches that ranged from racial ambivalence uh, to racist antipathy. Uh, one of the things that this book does is explore uh, the coexistence of a belief in racial difference, uh, a racist belief in black inferiority, uh, a grudging acknowledgement of sameness, uh, and a commitment to the medical mission of treating the mentally ill. Uh, in many ways, St. Elizabeth's uh, psychiatrist, a therapeutic approach to black patients was influenced by vernacular uh, attitudes about the Negro character. And an example of this is the housing of black male patients. Uh, the major therapeutic paradigm of the 19th and early 20th century, which is known as moral treatment, really dictated uh, that uh, mentally ill people be removed from their sources of stress and housed with people uh, suffering the same disease. Uh, despite this, uh, from the 1880s to the 1930s, African-American male patients were housed in the same, art, in the same building and uh, later complex with insane convicts and the criminally insane, regardless of their diagnosis of or civil status. And this is really influenced uh, by the larger cultural narrative that associated blackness uh, with criminality. This cultural narrative fit well with uh, the late 19th and early 20th century uh, medical consensus that mentally ill blacks were predisposed to mania uh, rather than melancholia. And a psychiatrist imagining of black uh, madness often associated with the most debased forms of uh, white uh, insanity. And so this is really perfectly encapsulated uh, by a 1900 uh, proposal uh, by the, um, by uh, uh, the kind of governing board of St. Elizabeth's to permanently locate all black patients, including women, uh, with the quote, more disturbed and untidy white males on the other side of a main thoroughfare uh, dividing the hospital campus. Uh, so other ways in which therapy was uh, shaped by racist assumptions about innate black character or its expectations about what would constitute recovery uh, um, include uh, black patients being more likely to be subjected to mechanical restraints or seclusion. Uh, this again reinforced ideas about blacks as being uh, naturally intractable and disorderly. Um, also, by the time you get to the early 20th century, when psychotherapy is becoming uh, um, uh, used more and more in the hospital, uh, rather than using psychotherapy to get to the root cause of black patients' mental disorders, a psychiatrist used it to address the surface manifestation of uh, their psychosis. And, um, and also to remediate their condition to the point that they could engage in labor, uh, either inside the hospital or outside the hospital. And here are just two images of, um, again, uh, some of these ideas and how they manifested in very concrete terms. This is a picture of Howard Hall, which was the uh, facility uh, that housed uh, the criminally insane and uh, insane convicts, as well as all uh, black male patients in uh, the late 19th century. And you can see here uh, with uh, the fenced off area um, along the verandas, which again, uh, kind of connect the, the, the um, uh, black male insanity uh, to, um, to kind of additional confinement than the normal, uh, than quote unquote normal. Uh, uh, 
hospital patients, right, and kind of associating them uh, with the need to actually uh, confine them more in jail-like spaces rather than hospital-like spaces. And then in the foreground, you, uh, you have uh, this pile of dirt with shovels, which again, associate um, black uh, mental patients uh, with labor and the expectations that they would perform the menial labor uh, on, on the campus. And in addition, uh, black uh, female patients were almost exclusively used uh, in the hospital's laundry, as well as essentially doing scullery work in uh, the hospital's uh, kitchens and, and dining rooms. Uh, so even after you see the emergence of uh, post-World War II era consensus, uh, that uh, race really plays uh, no role in, in an individual's psychical responses to external stimuli and uh, also the desegregation of mental hospitals, ideas about racial difference really continue to persist. Uh, and you see this really with the increased disproportionate diagnoses of African-Americans with schizophrenia uh, once it becomes associated with uh, violence and aggression in uh, the 1960s and uh, the 1970s. Uh, so I really don't have time to go into uh, the second main argument that, uh, th that the book makes, uh, because I really do want to, again, uh, bring this uh, a little forward to talk about um, the entanglement of uh, black mental illness and uh, discourses of criminality, and uh, as well as actual kind of law enforcement uh, to uh, the present. And I want to end uh, by drawing just a few connections uh, between uh, the community mental health care movement and, uh, uh, as I said, the persistent entanglement of Black mental illness and law enforcement, uh, which links up to the current crisis of uh, policing and uh, the movement for Black lives. Uh, the community mental health care movement was a noble effort uh, by mental health experts and uh, federal and state policymakers to address the problems of the post-war uh, mental health care system, which was characterized by overcrowded, uh, dilapidated state mental hospitals, uh, high patient to staff uh, ratios, really the absence of effective uh, treatment regimes in a sense hospitals were more akin to, custod to uh, custodial uh, institutions than uh, therapeutic uh, or curative environments. In the 1960s and 1970s, uh, community mental health care advocates envisioned a decentralization of uh, mental health care delivery. Uh, large state hospitals would be replaced with smaller mental health centers uh, that the mentally ill, so that the mentally ill could be treated closer to their homes and families. Uh, community mental health care would allow uh, members of the community uh, to have more of a say in what kinds of health care uh, would be delivered and by whom. Um, experts and community residents also argued that in interventions needed to be made before an individual's distressed state evolved into a condition that warranted institutionalization. And so this required from their perspective, arming non-experts uh, such as teachers, clergy, social workers, and law enforcement officers with the knowledge and skills to serve as a first layer of assistance for mentally distressed people. At the same time, uh, the community mental health care movement occurred alongside a patient's rights movement 
in which mentally ill people uh, who were institutionalized demanded first a right to treatment uh, and second, a right to treatment in the least restrictive setting. Many of the plaintiffs in these class action lawsuits, uh, which occurred across the country, uh, were African-Americans uh, who resided in urban areas, uh, such as William Dixon here um, at the top of the uh, page, um, who was the lead plaintiff in the case against St. Elizabeth's in the mid-1970s. He and others argued that they were involuntarily confined in uh, a large mental hospital when they could instead receive treatment in alternative spaces, such as halfway houses, foster homes, and nursing homes. The Dixon case led to large-scale uh, release of patients, a process that we know as uh, now known as deinstitutionalization. Uh, and this was a progressive uh, development in the long historical trajectory of uh, treating uh, the mentally ill. However, uh, deinstitutionalization allowed states to pass off responsibility for funding of decentralized, uh, for funding a decentralized mental health care system to local governments. And uh, by the 1980s, there was very little federal support for uh, community mental health care. As a result, uh, deinstitutionalization led to rising rates of homelessness uh, with housing needs met largely by welfare hotels and homeless shelters. Uh, the shrinking of the state mental health, uh, mental hospital system also contributed to rising rates of incarceration of mentally ill people. And so it's actually more accurate to refer to deinstitutionalization as trans-institutionalization, right? the movement of, of uh, mentally ill people from uh, mental hospitals to uh, prisons, as well as nursing homes. And uh, this has led uh, to the appalling reality that American prisons are now the largest service provider for uh, mentally ill people. And uh, non-incarcerated people who are experiencing a mental health crisis are more likely to interact with police uh, than mental health workers. So at this moment, uh, when uh, police and mass incarceration are the civil rights issues of our time, uh, a defund the, mental, the, the police movement uh, has gained momentum. And this, of course, is based on, uh, or included in this, is a recognition that police serve uh, as uh, first responders to problems that otherwise could be dealt with by uh, social services. But there's an unfortunate irony in the fact that it was the community mental health care advocates themselves and their supporters in the 1960s and 1970s who argued that law enforcement should become more involved in community-wide efforts in addressing uh, mental illness. And uh, again, unfortunately, uh, that in a noble, initial noble vision of uh, bringing the larger community into um, uh, the care of, of, mental, of the mentally ill um, was, um, was undermined by uh, what continues to be uh, 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 um, a very anemic uh, uh, funding of social services um, in our society. So I'll, I'll stop uh, there and I look forward to um, the conversation with the, remain, the remainder of that.
Gosh, Martin, thank you so much. That was uh, really fascinating. Um, and um, we have quite a number of uh, listeners on our uh, stream um, from North Carolina, Florida, Boston, Shaker Heights, Ohio, Philadelphia, out here in California. So there are quite a number of people who are really <laughs> tuning in, quite quite interested in what you have to say. And we have a, a several questions. Um, some of them you addressed, uh, but maybe you could um, expand on them a little bit more. One of the questions was whether black patients lived under, at St. Elizabeth's lived under uh, different sort of security regimes than the white patients. And you, you addressed that, but then this notion that the men, the black men and women seem to have been housed together. Um, was that the case for the, the white patients as well? And how did this kind of play itself out sort of spatially, if you will, and also in terms of the incarceration regimes? Yeah, well, in general, um, black male patients and black female patients weren't housed together, although there was a brief period of time during the 18th, you know, during the Civil War, uh, when some of the facilities on the campus uh, were being used to uh, as, as hospitals for uh, Union soldiers. And that's actually one of the re very interesting things because uh, this, this um, therapeutic paradigm of moral treatment uh, not only argued that uh, you needed to um, house people who were suffering, you know, right, who had the same diagnosis together, but that you also had to uh, segregate uh, mentally ill people, not only on the basis of race, but also on the basis of gender. Uh, and so housing uh, men and women together was anathema uh, to, uh, to, to psychiatrists in the mid-19th century. Yet, uh, again, uh, because there was um, uh, scarce resources for African-American patients to begin with, uh, Black men and women were housed uh, together uh, for a brief period of time. So in that sense, um, this uh, a um, uh, inability to kind of respect right, the, um, the existence of this conventional uh, gender roles within uh, the African-American community really undermined the uh, therapeutic vision of uh, psychiatrists uh, in the mid-19th century. Um, I will say that, uh, again, I, 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 taught, I referred to this in, in, in uh, my opening remarks, yes, African-American men, uh, there were there was, uh, special security arrangements for African-American men in the sense that they were housed in uh, this uh, facility for insane uh, convicts and uh, the criminally ill. Uh, criminally insane. Um, there weren't, in terms of housing, there, there, there weren't kind of similar security arrangements for Black women, yet Black women were subjected to very kind of coercive forms of treatment, disproportionately, right? Uh, and so, for instance, when you think about hydrotherapy, which then was a very coercive form of, of, of treatment uh, in, the, in the late 19th century, um, it, there's, there's clear evidence that uh, hospital staff used hydrotherapy uh, to discipline unruly uh, Black uh, women, uh, much more so than they would use it to discipline uh, unruly uh, white women. Interesting, interesting. Uh, we just had another question related to this. Um, were the administrators uh, uh, of the, the facility uh, and the physicians and the um, and the caretakers and so on were they African American or were they white? Was there no? 
No, that's a great question. And I, I'm sorry that um, that wasn't clear uh, at the beginning of, uh, you know, throughout the talk, really. Uh, so uh, the uh, administration, the hospital staff um, and uh, were white. Uh, and um, it's not until, and then by hospital staff, I'm not only talking about uh, the, the physicians, the kind of second physicians they were known as, as well as um, the nurses and attendants. Uh, it's not really until uh, the 1930s and 1940s when you begin to see uh, the integration of the hospital staff, kind of non-clinical hosp uh, hospital staff. So the non-clinical staff, such as attendants, right? You begin to see African-Americans uh, being hired as attendants uh, in, in the 1940s. And earlier than that, you begin to see uh, African-American nurses being hired um, you don't, it's not until 1955 that you have to actually have a black physician on, uh, on, on, on staff. And, um, and you don't see any black administrators until the early 1970s. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I was so fascinated by this kind of continuity and the paternalism between slavery and then this mental health regime, right? This sort of paternalism, we have to sort of take care of these, you know, primitive peoples and so on. What was the, the uh, cure rate, one of our questions is, um, and what was the cure rate, so to speak, differential between black and, and white um, patients? Because if you're sort of, you know, if you then cure blacks, then they're released in this right. form, right? So how did, how did that sort of match up? Yeah, well, you know, I don't have a very good quantitative evidence for that over the, over the duration of my study. Um, but I will say that um, one of the things that I, I look at in, 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 in the chapter um, that deals with uh, treatment um, in the 20th century, or at least the first half of the 20th century, if you look at the 1920s, um, the rates of release as recovered, right? Uh, so the rates of recovery um, are much higher for white male patients uh, than uh, they are we're not only um, uh, white female patients, but, but also uh, African-American male uh, and, uh, and female patients. So I actually looked at um, every annual reports from 1920 to uh, 1930. And um, the release rate or the discharge rate, I should say, as recovered, as opposed to the discharge rate as unrecovered or the discharge uh, rate uh, through death. Um, is, is very, very low for, uh, for African-Americans. I mean, we're talking about less than 5% of African-Americans who were discharged uh, in, um, in the 1920s were, um, were, were discharged as recovered. Uh, and so, so, and I, I think that, I, I do think that that really speaks to, uh, as, I, as I said earlier, this, um, this prioritization Right, of, of treatment of, of white patients um, and, and lower expectations of what recovery would look like for uh, African-Americans, right? As long as African-Americans were able to kind of uh, get out and kind of you know, uh, make a living, uh, you know, working as a domestic or working as a, uh, a, a junk peddler or a rag uh, seller or things like that, then you know, they could be released, but they wouldn't necessarily be, they wouldn't necessarily be considered a recovery. There, there is a question then, which is, is related to this, is whether um, the white patients, um, because you showed these striking images of the African-American 
men and women doing this kind of menial labor uh, at St. Elizabeth's. Were the white patients also expected to do uh, labor within the in the hospital? No, no, they weren't. Right, but they did labor. They, you know, so for instance, um, there's a clear distinction in uh, the kinds of uh, roles um, or the kind of work done by black and white patients in uh, the dining rooms, right? So um, again, black uh, women and men uh, primarily uh, worked in the kitchen, uh, whereas white patients might work in the dining room, right? Um, black patients almost exclusively worked in the laundry, in, in, in uh, the, laundry, the hospital's laundry. I, I don't. I haven't seen any evidence that white patients worked. Uh, the only whites who worked in um, in, in the laundry were were supervisors or, or managers. Um, but again, so so this therapeutic paradigm of of moral treatment also uh, also places an emphasis on um, make rest further and further into themselves, right? Um, and uh, and so there was a, there there was very much an emphasis on making sure that uh, patients were, you know, uh, their, their, their days were kind of occupied doing something. For black patients, that was doing a menial labor. Um, for white patients, especially white female patients, that might be allowed, uh, making, you know, um, having them do quilting, right? Um, uh, uh, sewing work, those kinds of things. So embroidery, so kind of class, you know, classical uh, middle class in Victorian activities. Yeah, it, this just resonates so much with the prison industrial complex arguments that we're hearing um, that we've heard quite a bit about in the last couple of years and continue to hear about is that we employ the prison, sort of, I mean, it's not a prison population, it's a hospital population, right? Mm -hmm. But we employ this kind of uh, confined, incarcerated population to provide this labor. So mm -hmm. do you see any resonances with your, um, of your work with with those other arguments uh, that are that are large scale sort of call for prison reform today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this has been a long history, right? And the, the prison industrial complex has always existed. Um, it's, it's you know, it's uh, and this goes back to um, you know uh, not only prisoners laboring, uh, but but also and that in laboring. Um, because that fulfills this kind of therapeutic logic, right? Um, that, that this is this is going to help them. Uh, uh, this is going to reform them in some way. But also the labor that they're doing uh, is materially benefiting the institution, right? And so, um, so in Saint Elizabeth's, just as you have in other asylums or, or prisons in the late nineteenth century, uh, and even some uh, uh, colleges for. For black students, right? That the students would actually be making uh, mattresses um, that would be sold, uh, and so, so, so there's. I think I think there's very much a um, a connection between uh, the labor that's being done by uh, you know people who are institutionalized and the uh, market. Right. The the, um, the the another question just comes in, of course, that is. Um, completely related, uh, I was thinking too, is it St. Elizabeth's, the name of this uh, institution, right? So what was the role of religion above and beyond the kind of moral question treatment of the way you described it? Was there any overt use of religion in uh, at St. Elizabeth's? 
Well, sure. Uh, they, they certainly provided religious services for, uh, for patients. Um, those religious services were segregated. Uh, and, um, but, you know, St. Elizabeth's was not a Catholic institution. It was named St. Elizabeth's uh, at, because it was situated on a tract of land uh, that, you know, the owner of, uh, designated as St. Elizabeth's, right? Um, so, so there were, in fact, in fact, in fact, from five different Protestant uh, denominations, um, um, regularly provide uh, provide uh, worship services, uh, and then of course Catholic patients could also uh, could also attend mass. I, I wasn't able to determine whether or not uh, there were um, you know, services provided for uh, Jewish patients. But okay, it's a, it's a fascinating kind of overlay of confessional identity on racial identity. Right, and then on class identity, it's fascinating. Um, uh, we have one question. Um, if you could go a little bit more into the lobotomy uh, issue at St. Elizabeth's um, and, and how you would describe that in your in your uh, remarks, and, and maybe go into it a little bit more. Yeah, you know, but, yeah, thank you. So, as I said, you know, William Freeman, who was one of the American popularizers of uh, lobotomy, got a start at St. Elizabeth's, um, but. What's very interesting is that he was there when William Allenson White was superintendent, and William Allenson White was actually very opposed to uh, lobotomy. So, you know, lobotomy was a it was a very controversial, um, a controversial practice, a controversial uh, technique uh, from the very beginning. And not all side there there was no kind of psychiatric consensus on the value of lobotomy. And uh, William Allenson White basically, and this is a paraphrase. Um, paraphrasing, you know, he said, you know, um, why would we destroy uh, the mind when we're really trying to, you know, to trying to cure it? Uh, and so, um, so Freeman actually did not um, did not uh, perform any lobotomies at St. Elizabeth's. He didn't really begin performing uh, lobotomies until he went to private practice, but he was still located in Washington D.C. Um, and it's not until the 1940s when we have another. Um, Another superintendent who did allow uh, lobotomies to to uh, to, to take place um, at St. Elizabeth's, but again, very sparingly. Uh, he was also somewhat skeptical of, of the use of lobotomy. I don't have any uh, quantitative data on the, the use of lobotomy on or the kind of racial differential of the use of lobotomy. Um, that was something that I was that interested in, in, in exploring this project. Be interesting to know if the if the white brain was more worth being preserved than the black brain, right? And so and how the lobotomy played itself out there. Um, another question, which goes um, uh, along, or two more questions actually. I think people are really fascinated by treatment, those treatment regimes. Um, was shock therapy used? And uh, you mentioned psychoanalysis as well, also a very controversial um, treatment regime, right? And so it would, and that seemed, I think you said, to, to be used or acceptable at St. Elizabeth's, right? Yes. So yeah. can you talk about that, about that a little bit and then about the, the coercive, the maybe more coercive use of shock therapy? Sure. Yeah, well, absolutely. Shock therapy was used uh, at, at St. Elizabeth's um, with, with some frequency um, and, 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 you know, it continued to be used until uh, you um, began, you see the introduction of uh, of psychotropic uh, drugs uh, in, in the 1950s and in the 1960s. With, with respect to psychoanalysis, I mean, I think one of the important, one of the arguments I make in, in the book is that uh, with uh, with white patients, 
psychiatrist, the psychiatrist at St. Elizabeth's, I think, um, very much uh, harbored a belief that even though white patients might be resistant to the probing of their psyche, that deep down, you know, they really did want to be cured, right? Um, and, and that didn't extend, that, that same belief didn't extend uh, to black patients, which is why I think what you see, and this is, this is based on my consultation of scores of, of, of case files of, of black patients, uh, you really don't see that kind of uh, deep uh, kind of probing of uh, the psyches of black patients in order to really kind of get uh, at these, these complexes, right? Um, that uh, serves the basis of uh, their, their, their psychosis. Um, I think that the, the, the extent of talk therapy that existed with black patients was really just trying to address the kind of surface symptoms of their psychosis, right? Um, and, and also just attempting to get them to a, a position where they would be, or get them to a state where uh, they uh, you know, would be able to kind of continue to uh, labor either within, within the hospital or they would be in a position to be released, maybe as recovered, maybe as not recovered, right? But they would, they would still be able to be released um, and, and not be deemed as a, as a threat to themselves or, or to their families. So differential defi uh, definitions of cure, yeah. right? I mean, what, what, right. what constitutes cure? Uh, we have just a, a few more minutes and, and, and we do have um, a, a question about what you're working on now. Mm. So what, what's, what's your newest project? Yeah, so thank you for that. I mean, it's, I think it's really connected a little bit to um, what I was just, what, how I ended the talk um, and, and the other argument that I didn't really get an opportunity to, uh, to share. And, uh, and that is, um, one of the things I'm, look, I'm, I'm looking at is, or what I'm looking at, is um, kind of the relationship between um, uh, uh, urbanization and, and mental illness. Uh, and, and by that I mean um, how uh, mental health experts and uh, policymakers, as well as uh, grassroots activists in the second half of the 20th century thought about um, uh, uh, urbanization, kind of the social ills uh, that racked uh, poor, low-income uh, communities, um, and the relationship between those that and, and mental illness, and how they consequently sought to address the mental uh, healthcare needs of of so-called uh, ghetto residents. Um, so, and so, um, I'm, I'm looking at three cities: uh, Chicago. Uh, Boston and, and Washington, D.C. And I'm really focusing on, you know, so for instance, the National Institute of Mental Health is very uh, involved in addressing uh, the, the, the mental health care dimensions of the urban crisis in the 1960s and the 1970s. And they really kind of tried to partner with grassroots organizations on the ground. But I'm also looking at the ways that um, these grassroots uh, community organizations uh, sought to leverage a federal support for uh, community mental health care that they themselves would kind of um, you know, uh, design and, 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 and have a critical role in, in delivering, right? Just not um, allowing these outside professional, the psychiatric professionals to come into their communities, but they really wanted to play a, a real key role in, um, in, in determining uh, what uh, mental health care would look like in, in the communities. And, and so, 
So that, and that's kind of tied to the second argument in, in the book. There's, I think there's generally a, um, a, a conventional wisdom that African Americans have a very um, um, uh, hostile, uh, indifferent, or um, uh, kind of antipathetic uh, relationship to, to psychiatry. And, and one of the things that I argue is that no, that they, they don't, in fact, um, that, that, that they, they've, um, they've always uh, tried to engage psychiatry. Um, but in uh, on their own terms, right? Uh, in in ways that you know, that, that gave them a say in, in, in what that mental um, health care would look like. I mean, it's a completely unfair question to ask right at the very end. But one of our questioners early on had asked whether you treat Native American or other um, minoritized uh, populations in in the book, and how. And just as you were speaking now, I was thinking, well, that would be a natural question for this new yeah. project as well. Yeah, I, I do not. Um, but there were there were uh, uh, Native American patients at, at St. Elizabeth's. Um, but uh, you know, and I I, I I talk about their existence there, but I really don't dive uh, very very deeply into uh, into their experiences. Um, but uh, yeah, I I, I I certainly think that that is a, a history that that's, that is being told. Um, that um, there's a, a recent book called I think Burgess, uh, Banished in Hiawatha uh, that looks at the Canton uh, Asylum in, in South Dakota, uh, oh, which was uh, dedicated to uh, Native Americans. Um, and it closed in, in 1933 during the Depression. And then all of those uh, patients were transferred to, uh, to St. Elizabeth's. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, the further further inquiry, all completely fascinating. Thank you, thank you so much for your presentation and for um, uh, answering the, the, the questions, these wide ranging questions as well. And uh, thanks to everyone who joined us. Uh, good evening to everyone. Stay safe and stay well. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.